Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is Coral Shinneman, president and founder of Review Lab. And welcome to another edition of ESI Bites. We're alongside the Honorable John Facciola, retired U.S. Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. We'll uh, attempt to offer information, insights, and ideas about e-discovery innovation from national speakers on electronic discovery at a price everyone can afford, which is free, and available when you're interested in listening to it, <clears throat> which is never you hit the play button on your iPod, iPad, computer, or any device. Today we have an interesting show highlighting some of the pioneer judges of e-discovery who are now stepping back in the last few years as they retire or semi-retire. Experience sometimes makes us smarter or gives us the benefit of perspective, so I figured it would be an interesting to pull a show of some of the elder statesmen and women of the judiciary who are friends of mine and do a show on their perspectives and experiences. And it dovetails back into some experiences I had a few years ago with my father who visited uh, my daughter's MBA program at John Carroll University, and uh, he, he was a former FASB member, um, which is like their Supreme Court of Accounting, and he gave a talk about public accounting to the accounting students from the perspective of someone who'd overseen the profession. And I thought it was really fascinating hearing how someone who's influenced the field talks about their experiences and can bring together their perspectives and identify challenges going forward, and it seemed like a perfect idea for ESI Bytes, and when Judge Facciola suggested having uh, uh, former Judge Ron Hedges on the show, I thought about a panel of retired judges sharing their experiences and what a cool show that could be. And So that's how we got here. And our participants for the show are uh, Judge Nan Nolan, uh, who was uh, 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 appointed as United States Magistrate Judge for the Northern District of Illinois in 1998, uh, retired a couple of years ago. Uh, she received her bachelor's degree from Loyola University, J.D. from DePaul University College of Law in Chicago. Judge Nolan presided over numerous complex federal cases at every phase of civil litigation during her 14 years as a U.S. magistrate judge, mediated, mediated over 1,500 cases while in the federal court. She's nationally recognized as an expert in e-discovery, co-founded the Seventh Circuit Electronic Discovery Pilot Program as a member of the Advisory Board for Sedona Conference, member of Georgetown University Law Center e-discovery advisory board, uh, and is currently working uh, with the JAMS panel serving as a mediator, arbitrator, and special master. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the show, Judge Nolan. You're um, welcome. Our next uh, guest, uh, Judge Ron Hedges, uh, was former U.S. Magistrate Judge in the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey from the, uh, for the Court Mediation Program, a member of the Lawyers Advisory Committee, and both a member of and reporter for the Civil Justice Reform Act Advisory Committee. From 2001 to 2005, he was a member of the advisory group of magistrate judges. Uh, Ron was an adjunct professor of Seton Hall University uh, School and Georgetown University Law Center. He's currently an adjunct professor at Rutgers School of Law in Newark. Um, he's also a fellow at the Center for Information Technology at Princeton University from 2010 to 11 and 2011 to 2012. Among many other things, he's a member of the American Law Institute, ABA, Federal Bar Association. He's a member of the Historical Society and the Lawyers Advisory Committee for the United States District Court for the District of New Jersey. 
Uh, Ron's also a member of the advisory board for Advanced Discovery Institute of Georgetown University Law Center and frequently writes uh, a wealth of material on ESI-related topics. Uh, he's a member of the Sedona Conference Advisory Board, Sedona Conference Working Groups on Protective Orders, Confidentiality, and Public Access on Electronic Document Retention and Production. So, Ron, thanks for joining us. And, Thank uh, you for having me, Cole. Judge David Waxy is uh, a semi-retired. We're not sure what that means, but we'll find out. Uh, United States Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court, Kansas City, Kansas. And Judge Waxy received his BA degree from the University of Kansas in 1967 and JD degree from Columbia University School of Law in 1970. Past president of the Kansas Bar Association and is also a member of the ABA Judicial Division. Judge Waxy is past chair of the National Conference of Federal Trial Judges of the Judicial Division of the ABA and is currently the immediate past chair of the Judicial Division of the ABA. He's also an observer of the Sedona Conference Working Groups on Electronic Document Retention and Production, Working Group 1. In addition to prior to becoming a judge, he was a member of the National Boards of the American Civil Liberties Union, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, and the American Judicature Society. Uh, thank you, Judge Waxy, for joining us. and. Uh, my my last uh, semi-retired judge is my co-host, Judge Fatiola, who retired as a United States Magistrate Judge in the District of Columbia last year, where he served since 1997 and is well-known in the field for his thought-provoking opinions and the speaking of some national and discovery. And Judge Fatiola has been a member and mentor of many, been a mentor for many in the field of e-discovery, including myself, and is active in e-discovery education at Georgetown. So, with that in mind, let's let's start the show and. Uh, I'd like to ask everyone, what do e-discovery judges do in retirement with their extra free time? Um, do you run away from e-discovery saying you're finally free to do more interesting tasks, or do you remain active in the field because you're hooked and there are still so many challenges remaining to be solved? And I guess we can sort of take this in the order I introduced you. So, Judge Nolan, if you'd like to start. Um, well, I have probably maybe been busier in retirement. I have been... I didn't count up the total number of times I was asked to speak. I think there is an interesting thing when you're retired. Um, we're now able to, judges aren't supposed to speak to a group unless both sides of an issue are, are or both sides, of all, all parties are open to the invitation. I've been invited to speak to some law firms, to a couple governmental agencies, to some not-for-profits, and they really wanted some tips kind of on how to act, and I could never have done that. I also have been invited because I think we can speak a little freer as a retired judge, so I think there's some interest in that. And it's a wonderful way for me to be able to keep up. Um, and so it's been kind of a win-win situation for me. Is that why you ran away from me when we first met and I was blogging about clean products when I used to blog and I walked over and said hi and introduced myself and you literally ran away? <laughs> I, I I hope I didn't really run away, but you know, but that that case got so much publicity that I probably was hyper vigilant. I mean, that's the real problem judges have. Yeah, they're kind of under the microscope. So, so Judge Hedges, I probably in the same 
boat as man is to some degree. I'm not retired, though. I left the bench. Instead of retiring from it, uh, I spend a lot of my time doing special master stuff, uh, arbitrations, mediations. Arbitrations, mediations, really not related to ESI, but the special master work, some of it is. Some of it comes more from the background that we all shared, and that is case managers, because magistrate judges manage a lot of litigation in districts. So I've been keeping busy with a lot of different things, including speaking and writing and traveling every place. So thank you for having me again today, Carl. And Judge Waxy, you're semi-retired, so you can explain what this all means. Well, magistrate judges have this unique role that we can officially retire in terms of our status with the courts, but then they call the status we next go into as recalled magistrates. And it's not because of a defect. It's because <laughs> somebody came up with that word to explain <laughs> So as a recalled magistrate, I am still hearing cases and my docket consists both of civil and criminal, and I have a half-time law clerk to help me. And so it depends on how many cases actually get set and in terms of how much time I'm actually in the courthouse. It's not full-time, but on the rest of my time, I have, as Ron mentioned, doing lots of traveling, lots of speaking, and lots of writing. And it's amazing. I have discovered that when I go to these presentations, I can learn as much as I can impart because there are always people that are in other pieces of the e-discovery world that have very helpful information. So I think my September has five or six out-of-town trips to speak on e-discovery. Carol, Carol, one downside to being retired is as much as I talk to my uh, former magistrate judges and I hear other judges talking, I don't have first-hand experience about what are the issues in 2015. And there is really something to be said for people who are doing it day-to-day and know what are the hot issues that are going on. And we don't have that. Okay, that's a good observation. And uh, Judge Fraciola, we almost met the Pope today by to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, it is a, a, a magnificent day here, and uh, His Holiness is in town, so it's quite remarkable. Uh, my uh, experience now has changed quite radically in that I guess I'm about one credit away from being a full-time professor at Georgetown Law, where I'm teaching information technology and modern litigation. But more interestingly, perhaps I'm teaching in the LLM program, and I'm teaching evidence to, to uh, 37 students, all of whom are from foreign countries. And uh, I'm learning so much from them. And it's really been a terribly exciting uh, experience. Um, and the contrast in the systems is just remarkable. I always try to have lunch with my uh, students. And one of my students is Brazilian. And she was amazed how in America you just filed a complaint. She explained in Brazil you would no more file a complaint without all of your evidence attached to it than you would uh, you know, go to the courthouse and dance. So learning how these uh, systems interact and how different they are has been remarkably uh, fascinating to me. Uh, like my, my colleagues and friends, I continue to write, I continue to speak. 
But unlike them, I've cut back on the travel. I'm an old man, and I'm like a good I'm like a good wine. I just don't travel well. Um, I'm going to pick up on a, a thought here, which is the next generation of judges. I don't know about uh, you, but my successor was 23 or five years younger than I am. Uh, so we are seeing a remarkable uh, transition in in uh, the age. It also occurs to me that the 25 years difference has been some of the most remarkable 25 years in human history in terms of technological change. Do you see this new generation of judges, particularly magistrate judges, confronting the problems we confronted in a different way? Nan? Yeah, uh, yeah yes. Um, I think it depends on the person because I think this is a recurring question that comes up about younger I certainly think younger people are more adept on technology. I don't know whether that makes them e-discovery savvy or even interested. I mean, I think the technology part is more practical. Uh, it is interesting, though, the person who uh, replaced me was 25 years younger, too. Um, I want to say, though, here's what I've been doing. One of the things I've been doing in retirement, Carl, is mm -hmm. I got Sedona, I got Ken's case, uh, his summary of the cases one day, and I'm sitting there, and so what the heck was I going to do? I started seeing all these different judges' opinions. So what did I do? I counted, and there were 48 new judges writing opinions. And it struck me, what is the law going to look like in 10 years? I think it's going to be very hard to predict. We knew what Grimm, Facciola, Waxy, uh, Pack, Shinlin, Nolan, maybe, were going to say. We don't know what these 48 people are going to say. Dave, you and I have uh, written extensively on Fourth Amendment considerations involving electronically stored information. It is said that each generation of Americans have very different ideas of privacy. Do you think this new generation of judges will have a very different expectation of privacy than our generation had? You know, I think, as Nan just said, it's going to vary somewhat with individuals, but there are certainly some of these new people that just don't see the importance of privacy like many of us of the older generation do. And it's it's very sad because I, you know, from reading the literature on privacy, it's clear, especially if you look at survey information, younger people today just do not appreciate the importance of maintaining privacy. They the kind of stuff they will post online or send by text message is just frightening from my perspective of someone who thinks privacy is very important. So I'm afraid that feeling is going to end up in the minds of some of these new judges. But so far, I haven't seen any written opinions that are scary. It's mostly this information from surveys and from talking to younger people who don't quite understand why we're so concerned about maintaining privacy. Ron, uh, 
it also appears to me when I looked at the applicants for my position that because in the decline in the number of civil trial cases we all tried, the number of lawyers who have extensive civil experience seems to be going down among the next generation of judges. I don't know if you agree with me, but do you see that and do you think it has any consequence for the federal judiciary? I don't think there's any doubt that we're seeing less opportunities for trials. One of the concerns I have along the line you're talking about, John, when I started practice, my first case was in small claims in Essex County, New Jersey, and we fought about a defective hammer, and the case was worth maybe $1,000. I'm concerned that we're running out of opportunities to do that for people. And, And that bothers me a lot because there's nothing like sitting in a well and talking to a judge and a jury in the middle of a trial. You know, other I'm, hand, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I interrupted you. Please, go ahead. No, no. Uh, but on the other hand, the way we are going, we're being so discovery-focused, if you will, I think, in the federal court and motion practice. Maybe we're developing a generation of lawyers who are going to be more, oh, argument-savvy, not in the sense of arguing in front of a jury, but going in front of a judge. And I don't know whether where that goes or where that takes us, but I think we're going to see certainly lessening of trial skills among newer attorneys. Uh, Carl, I didn't know, but I'll just go on if you don't. If you don't sure. Uh, yeah, we may have on. answered the the question I was going to ask, so that's fine. Uh, we've gone uh, too long without money because of sequestration of educating the judiciary and we're starting up again. Um, in terms of the education of lawyers and thereby, therefore of judges, do you think there is adequate attention being given to the technical part of a lawyer and then a judge's life in the law school curriculum and in the CLE programs? And the reason I ask that question is George Socha in my present, estimated that in his view, of the 100,000 lawyers in America, there may be 500 to 1,000 who truly understand electronic discovery, which is an astonishing statistic. Do you see that improving? Will we get lawyers more adept at this and therefore lawyers, uh, judges who are more adept at this? Or will we continue to go on as we are going on now? Well, let me rephrase your your question a little bit and suggest this. Do I see a difference between competence, and that's what we're really talking about here, for lawyers on the level of federal litigation as opposed to state litigation? And I think, without a doubt, the answer is there's a big difference between the two. I routinely speak to state associations around the country. Not only is there less knowledge about electronic information, I think eternity, a number of attorneys affirmatively avoid it. And I think that's by choice. But on the other hand, how can we avoid it now? I know that social media, for example, plays a prominent part in every domestic relations case these days. As far as the education goes, I don't have an easy answer for that. Uh, everyone talks about having technical skills imparted to law students, but frankly, there's a three-year curriculum. There's a lot of things going on. 
And I don't know that a lawyer has to know how to do technology-assisted review or search. I think a lawyer has to know who to talk to to have that done. So I see a mixed bag in education. I've certainly done programs that I think are incredibly good on educating lawyers, but I just don't see the technical side and, if you will, the practical side coming together any more than we did years ago in environmental litigation when you need to get an expert who's going to talk about soil samples and the like. A lawyer doesn't have to be an expert in soil samples. The lawyer has to know how to ask questions and know what's going on. So, as I said, I think it's a mixed bag there. I, John, yeah, um, I actually, I think the answer is 50-50. I, I, I think there is a problem not just with the judiciary, but with all of the lawyers and the clients. But I still want to go back to it's only been nine years since the first rules went into effect. And I think there are a number of court programs right now um, even if the AO doesn't have money for training for the judges, um, I just did a little summary of new district court guidelines, and I found maybe in federal courts maybe 10 courts that have got e-discovery guidelines. I do think Sedona, I don't know what any of us would have done without Sedona, I think the more federal judges know that their membership is free and they can get all of the materials from Sedona, I think they have become our training program and we should be eternally grateful. The woman that took my job, um, I'm going to give, Carl, I'm going to give you this for your website. She has done a wonderful little order. It's called Order of Appointment of a Technical Advisor. And it's a four-page order setting out the court's authority to do it. She had this huge antitrust case, um, and she did not understand any of the tar. You know, she didn't understand it. She felt like she had to, and she got herself, with the parties paying, she got herself her own technical advisor. And I actually think that's something judges could do in the really complicated cases, and we might see more of it in the future. I also think the two big cases right now, um, Rio Tinto and John Barquette's case down in Florida, are using special masters because I think in these really complicated cases, the district court's saying, you know, I don't have the expertise. So you get Mora in one and John Barquette in the other one, and you're, you know, you're, you have 50% more information than you had before. Yeah, I'm presenting at Georgetown this year on uh, special masters, and uh, that technical advisor role um, as we're talking about the curriculum, that's actually my experience in that area in Garlock. I think that's fantastic that we So do, I'll send we you this order, yeah. Carl, and you can I'll, put it up on your... I'll use it I'll, in the, the presentation. Thank you. Right. You know, another follow-up on this present special master thing is, even though I'm still serving as a magistrate judge in the District of Kansas, I got a call from the chief judge in the Eastern District of Missouri who wanted to appoint me as a special master in one of her cases that involved thousands <laughs> of plaintiffs against numerous defendants and had been going on for several years battling over e-discovery things. And 
I only met with them about three times, but I convinced them that they're going to get to just, speedy, and inexpensive in that case. They had to stop fighting over all this little stuff, and they agreed to selecting one vendor who would work for both sides subject to their agreement on what the searches were going to be like. And once that was done, I got out of my role as special master because it appeared to me they were making enough progress they didn't need a judge. And the other piece that we haven't talked about with special masters, I've used them in a lot of cases, and one of the things I've noticed is when parties have to pay on an hourly basis to get something decided, they can be much more expeditious than they are in front of a court. They they understand costing their client money if they don't get this done quickly, and they don't have any incentive to delay and procrastinate, which sometimes I see in front of judges. Interesting. Um, now, uh, with the exception of Judge Waxy, who's uh, working part-time still, um, what were the, uh, as a judge, what were the hardest issues you had to grapple with in the field as a judge dealing with a new discovery issue? And I'm sort of getting at what you were saying earlier, Judge Nolan, that you couldn't talk before because you were involved, but now that you're now that you're out, you know, what made it difficult? How did you deal with it? And, and uh, you know, I think that's going to be, the listeners would really find that interesting. So, Judge Nolan, if you want to start on that. Well, I actually had my first e-discovery case of any, you know, um, significance, I guess, was in 2002. So talk about, I think John goes back older than that, but there we were really making it up. I mean, we had, the only case was Roe, basically. I mean, it was way before Zubalake. And there were so few cases back then. Um, I, I mean, then obviously, clean was uh, the clean case was, I think, tricky in a lot of ways. It wasn't just getting posed with the issue of was I going to order tar, which at that time was the issue. Could a judge order it? But I think that there were so many people watching what was going on. I think that was kind of nerve-wracking. I happened to have a clerk um, who had a very strong scientific background. And I think that if judges have clerks that have specialties in areas that you may not have specialties, that was very helpful. Chris knew a lot about statistics. He understood much of the technical, he was really good with computers. And I, I, I think that's another way judges can be kind of filling in if they have some deficiencies here in the middle. I don't know whether I'm answering your question or I'm yeah. just babbling, but um, I, I think that from 2002, here we are 15 years later, I think it was much scarier back in 2002 because we literally were making it up as we went along. Uh, this is Faciola. My take is a little different. Mm-hmm. I have always found the problem being that unlike other areas of the law, we don't have a top-down jurisprudence. 
We don't have decisions by the Supreme Court and the Circuit Court. And we have nearly radical differences among ourselves. Mm -hmm. So finding the law in its source was terribly problematic. And you know, it still is. I taught uh, on preservation uh, yesterday in a mixed class. That is, two of my students are civil lawyers, one from France and uh, one from Germany. And when we finished, and I talked about all the differences and different conclusions, one of them said, can you Americans ever agree about anything? <laughs> and she pointed out how, could, how tough it is to be in a, a, a lawyer or a judge, for that matter, in an area where things keep changing and there is no central authority. And that, to me, was always the greatest frustration, that I was kind of out there uh, on my own. It was exciting. Um, it was, uh, you know, seeing the meadow for the first time or uh, rounding the corner and seeing something no one else would see. But at times it was very frustrating because the cases, the older cases in a paper universe don't really guide you. Right. Sanctions in a world where the case involved 25 pieces of paper is a radical different thing from the world in which we live. And I don't see uh, much change in that. And it's going to challenge the next generation of judges. Dave, Dave, I remember the day Williams came down on metadata. I was at some Sedona conference. And that must have been, did you find that really hard to do? I mean, you were really the first person that even said the word metadata. Well, I had... I had to learn what metadata was so I could write the opinion. I It was one of those things that was randomly assigned, and I had to learn it to write it, and there weren't any cases to rely on, so we sort of made it up as we went along. And it's amazing how that still continues. There's so many areas where there's no clear law, as Pat just mentioned, so you have to do what you think is best, and especially when you get questions that have only been answered by other magistrate judges and we have some areas where they're diametrically opposing opinions out there on what the answer is so you sort of have to just decide whether you think you're right and go with what you think's right as opposed to trying to count how many have written on various points well i want to go back to original the original question you asked and that was about experiences I've had. And I can't tell you any particular experience stands out because I think as everyone else has said, there's just such a variety of things going on. But one thing I've observed both when I was on the bench and as a special master, and I'm sure John and Nan and Dave have done the same thing, is this tendency of lawyers to get up and talk about things that they know nothing about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, being blunt. Um, and I'm not I'm not accusing lawyers, I just think it's a fact that the lawyer talks to in house counsel, maybe or maybe not talks to an IT person or a records management person, and then begins to make a lot of representations about fact. And these guys have all heard me say this before. I was doing a hearing last year and finally I went to a lawyer and said, Tell you what Get on the stand. I'll swear you in. I'll give you a day adjournment so you can get a new lawyer for your client because once you're testifying, you can't represent them. 
Um, and I think it's a serious question. We've had a number of decisions coming out where it turns out that lawyers said things were wrong and there were serious consequences for that. Uh, the latest one, I believe it's Brown versus Tellermate. It was just the magistrate judge's opinion from last year was just affirmed as modified by a district judge. But there are a lot of things going on there as to communications between attorney and client. And there's a new decision that just came out, I believe, from Dave's circuit that talks about sanctions on in-house counsel versus retained counsel. And the retained counsel is effectively saying in the opinion, I relied on what my client told me, and here I am. So I don't know how you get around that. And I don't know, John, if it goes to your point about lack of education in the area or it goes to the question about lack of trial experience or the like. But to me, all this is interrelated with how attorneys approach e-discovery and, frankly, any other issue. I mean, you would not see someone stand up in a patent case and start talking about areas that we know are detailed expert testimony. And in this area of e-discovery, there are a lot of things that are in dispute or come in that call for some type of expert opinion, not an attorney's representations. You know, another aspect of this we haven't talked about is that lawyers seem to ignore their ethical requirement to provide competent representation. And they're in the e-discovery world. And there are more and more opinions coming out explaining both from the ABA model rules to the specific ruling in California, you really have to learn what you're dealing with with e-discovery and not just go spouting things off the top of your head. That is not competent representation. And I think at some point we're going to see disciplinary authorities going after lawyers who continue to claim they are providing competent representation when they don't understand what they're doing in the e-discovery world. I'm the only one on the call who never has worn a robe, and I'm interrupting like possibly four different judges <laughs> at the same time. This is a horrifying experience, but I, I just want to add something that goes more into the weeds because I, I'm hearing this theme and I don't think I'm gonna. We're gonna do a show on this, uh, Judge Fatchiola. Uh, someone else asked me to do a show on their show. But um, when it comes time to budgeting projects with clients, clients will be sitting there with a lawyer looking at a case, and then they'll ask the question that's always in the back of their mind: What is this going to cost? And it's a lot like being in a courtroom at talking about something you don't know. So what lawyers typically will do is they'll call someone like myself, a vendor and say, well, what's it going to cost? And I'll be like, you're not giving me any information. I don't know what it's going to cost. <laughs> you know, how much data do you have? What are you going to do with it? And typically there are big gaps. And so now the client has a proposal with, a but, with, with an estimate. The estimate is based on lots of made-up stuff. You know what happens. The budgets off, more often than not don't get hit. And you have an unhappy client because there's this expectation. But at the moment the budget is given, the lawyer feels good. He wipes his hands clean because he's now given the client what he wants, an estimate. But it's an estimate based on nothing. And I, I really find it very interesting um, how we get when we get in the weeds of how the projects are built. And it's very much like, I guess, what happens in the courtroom. So I just wanted to add that. But, but to, to, to emphasize the point that Ron and David Nash have made, lawyers 
we just got to look around. The world is changing, and they're going to find themselves like buggy whip manufacturers. Clients are not going to pay big money to people who don't know what they're doing. And it's interesting. Bill Henderson at the University of Indiana Law School has been doing some uh, post-JD work on where young lawyers are winding up. And Bill is finding that it's not necessarily in the firm. They're becoming project managers. They're more entrepreneurial. I met with one of my uh, students yesterday. I taught him last year. And Michael uh, has programming experience and technical experience. And he's overwhelmed with job offers. You know, uh, and I just don't quite understand lawyers thinking that the world's not going to change and there's going to be a job for them no matter how poorly they do the job they have now. And it never ceases to amaze me. I think they're in for a hell of a shock. You know, another piece of this that we haven't talked about is, from my perspective, law schools are generally doing a terrible job of educating about e-discovery. There are a lot of schools that don't even have courses on it. They may mention it in a civil procedure course, but they don't give it the kind of focus that's really needed to get really competent lawyers in the field. I agree. Yeah, I've got a, a piece coming out in the ABA Professional Lawyer, uh, which flowed out of a conference held in January with uh, on that precise question of law schools and technical competence. It was a rainy Sunday morning in January, and I thought we'd be lucky if we had more uh, audience than panelists. After a half hour, it was standing room only of law professors. We had a vital and wonderful discussion of how to integrate this into the curriculum. I agree with Dave. It is a slow process, but I sense something's going on. And I think it's coming below from the students who are reporting back what the job market is and how in that job market capability that are a generation ago would have been considered technical are now part of what should be you know, the ordinary resume of most lawyers. Carl? Do you want to go into predictive coding a little bit, Dr. Axiel? Uh, well, <laughs> I'll let you see it up. Well, I, I don't know uh, the, the old battle that goes on. Uh, I think it, it raises a couple of, of issues. Uh, one of the issues is, is the one of, about expert opinion. But I think a more interesting issue, particularly for the panel we have today, is uh, it seems to me we're kind of at a fork in the road in terms of predictive coding. One fork would say, let the lawyers do what they're going to do, and I'll wait till the result is in. And the other fork that says, I better get involved in what they are doing early on, because I don't want the nightmare where they do it a certain way, and after we spend a couple of trillion dollars, somebody's going to say, we didn't do it right, and Your Honor should have intervened at the, in the first place, and made us tell each other, tell you what we were going to do. <clears throat> I see dangers in both courses of action, but I just wondered what my colleagues thought about that. Well, yeah, my John, I'm okay, Dave. I'll get you. I'll do later. Uh, my perspective is this is another perfect place for the use of cooperation instead of adversarial performances because. If you're going to get to just being inexpensive, you can't spend thousands of dollars fighting about which form of search you're going to use. 
it just it opens well as Nan's clean case pointed out, you can end up with terrible problems if you're doing something without agreement, without court approval, and the other side comes in after you've spent all this money and says, Well that was wrong. You're not gonna have any of those problems if what you do is get an agreement up front. And it's not only an agreement about what kind of predictive coding you're going to use. The part that's sometimes missing is there needs to be an analysis and an attempted agreement on what are the actual disputed factual issues. Because it's so disturbing to me to see a lot of money spent on some discovery project when there's no dispute about the facts they're doing discovery on. So there's so many things could be done to try and reduce the cost, which ultimately may improve the chances that there'll be more trials. Ron, well, you're about... I was, okay, I, Jen, was, I, I was just going to say, I mean, I completely agree. Um, I think people are tired of hearing us talk about cooperation. Um, I think they kind of buzz it out but I think in a new area that you're learning, and for most cases, both sides are learning at the same time, and the word transparency is also maybe overused in a way, but I actually see no downside at the rule. I think it should start at the Rule 16 conference on people telling what they're doing and that they understand it's going to be a series of steps. It's not going to be done one time. I, John, I'm, we're using, I'm talking next week on a TAR panel, and I had never really read, like memorized your fabulous article um, in the Federal Law Review on the seed set on the work product privilege. I think... It, I mean, it, your analysis, whether or not I agree with you, it is one of the most coherent analysis there are. Now, I think we can still do transparency, cooperation, and yet respect privileges. There's all kinds of an area of sharing that can happen. And if they did early sharing of information, they may be able to come up with some agreement where it's not going to violate the privilege. But if you wait a year into a case, then you're going to have just a mess. And that's certainly not violating anything. In fact, with the new rules, you're doing what the rules want you to do and what most judges, let's be honest here, judges love cooperation because it helps them so much. I have to step back and go back to a theme I had before, and that is, number one, that those of us on this call are in kind of a bubble. Yeah. We can call it the Sedona bubble, or we can call it the ESI guru bubble or the like, but we enjoy this stuff. We deal with it all the time, and there are a finite number of lawyers in the United States who do most of whom practice in federal court regularly more than state court. So we have a dichotomy within the ranks of the federal litigation and federal lawyers anyway. And then we have the state side where, frankly, there aren't that many people who are into this. 
So that's one problem I think we have with regard to the future in dealing with all these issues. But an even going back to what John was talking about, an even more fundamental one is we're federal judges. We were trained to be active case managers. And the decision I'm talking about now, Dave, came out of the 10th Circuit, which is not yours. You're, you're the 8th, right? No, 10th, Ron. Okay, so it came out of the 10th Circuit. It came out within the list. We could go, and I believe it's called Security National Bank uh, versus Jones Day. And it's not about ESI. In fact, this is a different decision than the one I was discussing a little while ago. But the circuit there seemed to take fault with the magistrate judge for not having taken an active role in management litigation. And this led to problems with the deposition and very, what should I call them, interesting sanctions imposed against someone from Jones Day. But the problem is, what does it mean to actively manage a case? If I had a class action, an MDL, I would want to talk to them every month or so to see how they're going. But a lot of cases in state court, we would see once, and federal court, we would see once, we would never see again. A lot of litigation in state courts, you never see a judge until you're going to trial. So active case management is a wonderful thing, but we need to step back and think about, number one, can the judges deal with all this? And do the judges know everything there is to know about ESI, any discovery? And number two, what do the lawyers know about it? Um, it's great to have a 26F and have the lawyers come in and have standards such as the Rule 26F standards and the federal rules and the Seventh Circuit pilot project that talks about things you should do. But I just wonder how many lawyers are capable of doing all those things, Carl. And how active should a judge be if the lawyers don't want to be, quite frankly? Yes, you got a lot of the blind leading the blind, or someone's got a cane. <laughs> well, you know, someone's got I'm reading not, glasses instead of distance glasses. <laughs> I'm not trying to fault anybody on it, but it's reality. There was, there's just so many people who look at this in so many different ways and have so many different approaches to litigation. Uh, there are some attorneys, and we certainly know some, who are ultra A-plus personalities, and from day one, they're raring to go with everything. There are a lot of other attorneys who say, you know what, when there's a problem coming up, judge, we'll tell you about it. So I, I just don't have one answer to everything. Judge Hedges, I was talking to a firm, I think, on the AMLAW 200, and I was talking to their head of e-discovery who confided in me and said, I don't know how I got this title. I came from a small <laughs> firm. I, you know, I'm, and I have an interest in it, in it. And I said, you know, it's like anything in litigation. You just find the people that know when you need to know it. You can't know it all all the time, you know, and you just get, you focus on the issues that are in front of you. But, you know, it's, I think that's normal fear. Do I know everything? And uh, once you realize you can't, you just got to understand the, the, the overall issues is my sense. And, and then find people when you have, you know, specific issues. But, um, hey, since, since most of our, you know, many of our listeners are, are you know, students and they're, or they're new e-discovery lawyers and they're trying to get their arms around the space, I was curious with, with, with all your collective wisdom, if you have any advice you might be able to offer to those who want to learn about e-discovery. Um, Judge Nolan, if you want to start on that. Say it again, please. We we have lots of new lawyers or, or, or even students that listen to this uh, program, 
And I was curious from your perspective as someone that's been in the field for a while and, and, and have a lot of wisdom about it, where would you suggest learning about this, you know, getting, getting becoming more knowledgeable about e-discovery? Well, I think there are some. <laughs> this is my favorite topic out on the stump. All the good free resources that are available. Um, and I think that to kind of get them outside of the law school bubble, too, which can also be a bubble, I think they should be involved, and they can be involved by reading the commentaries to Sedona. I think there are some really solid blogs. I think K&L Gates, I think they have to have information on what is available to them to be able to kind of find out what the current issues are. I, I would think that some of the programs offer, I hope they do, a, our pilot program, um, we're offering everything free. I think a number of bar associations give discount to students, or if they don't, they should. And um, I think it is very vital because most of our law schools don't have classes either. This is uh, John Faciola. I, I don't think there's ever been a point in human history where it is easy or cheaper to learn if you want to. Mm -hmm. I, always, I always tell people, imagine Thomas Jefferson wanting a book on botany from France. <laughs> and, think, and think of all he had to go to through. To, to go through. Now you click on something and there it is. So there are an endless number of sources. Um, my only view of it is, I think when you talk about e-discovery as if it were the topic, I think the broader topic is technology. So I always encourage my students to read the legal tech section in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. In other words, getting a good inf idea of what's going on in the world around you, technology, really informs and helps you uh, Think about e-discovery issues in a sophisticated and intelligent way. Yeah, it's funny now, John, now that you mentioned that, I've started reading, and I tell students and lawyers to read the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Because the journal has great coverage of a so lot of the technology New issues. <laughs> so does the New York Times. And, right. Uh, and there are a lot of wonderful stuff up there. Uh, for example, our listeners might want to know, I think, uh, 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 the best piece ever about cybersecurity was in Fortune magazine called The Hack of the Century about the hack at Sony. And I learned more about cybersecurity from that article than I've ever learned from any other source. I'd also recommend, Carl, that Carl. students who are interested in learning about this become student members of the Sedona Conference. Uh -huh. uh, un unfortunately, it's not free. Uh, we can talk about that some other day. But it gives you access to a number of materials. And frankly, there are a number of Sedona materials that are available under the Publications tab at Sedona right. that are free. All the uh, commentaries. And, and Sedona is a great resource for a lot of different things. One area, an area I would like to see more on, and unfortunately there's not that much on that, and John, coming back to something you said before, Fourth Amendment and criminal issues, uh -huh. That area is exploding. 
and there's a lot going on in that now. We have a circuit split now between the Fourth Circuit and I'm blanking out which one. Oh, the Fourth Circuit and the and the Eleventh Circuit on reasonable and, expectations of privacy. And the Fifth, yeah. And the Fifth, so uh, the Fifth, not the Eleventh. So there's a lot going on in that area that we're talking about. There's a program in New York in November that's going to be focusing on that. I'd like to see more on that, and I'd like to see students. You know, as a general proposition, if you want to do trial work, uh, you want to get involved in the pit we were talking about before, the well of the, the well of the court. It would be nice for people to take some cases when they're in practice that require representation of indigent defendants or maybe become prosecutors at the state or local level because you're going to be seeing more and more ESI involved in that litigation all the time, and it's a great place for someone to learn how to try cases. I don't know if you want to add anything to that list, Judge Waxy, or... Uh... No, I think what's been said is pretty much correct and on point. I think somehow... What do we say that's wrong, Dave? Somehow, <laughs> somehow we have to get more judges and more lawyers interested in learning about this because, as we've mentioned several times today, there are a lot of people just avoiding it. They are not looking at it carefully. And I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating. And in my case management conferences, I always ask, are there any ESI issues and how are you handling them? And one of the most ridiculous responses I had was they said, well, there's quite a bit of ESI and we've decided we're going to print it all out. And I said, you know, several problems with that. One is the environmental issue. And two, how are you going to search it if you print it all out? Side says, well, Judge, we've thought of that. We're going to scan it all back in when we get it so we can search it. You know, with that kind of approach to e-discovery, we're not going to get to just speedy and inexpensive. I I, can I, Carol, can I say ahead. something just in Absolutely. the end here? Um, I still believe every conference that I've ever gone to, all it keeps coming up with, how much does it cost? How much does it cost? How much does it cost? I still believe the number one expense in e-discovery is lack of education on somebody's part. So actually, I think it goes back to the starting point and really the issue should be kind of for all of us which it certainly is for Sedona how do we get people up to speed and what are what what works when people have a life outside of the bubble and you how know, do uh, we keep how do we keep educating them and and because it keeps changing every day too that's the other problem here yeah, the, the the I think that's a good place to end the the show on. And I'll, I'll just say, it's, it, for me, it's not just the education; it's uh, the lack of uh, trying new things and being entrepreneurial is the thing that's usually bugged me. Although it's created opportunities like crazy uh, for for some of the stuff that I've done personally, but it's you know too many people walk lockstep with what everyone else is doing, and we all agree that this is an area that needs a lot of tightening up. And it just takes forever if everyone's doing the same thing for one person to step ahead and come up with an idea and then for it to percolate across the field. Um, but that's a topic, I think, for another day or a topic with no answer. 
Um, so, but I, I think it's been a great show. I really, I just want to thank, you know, Judges Nolan, Waxy, and Hedges for joining Judge Bacciolo and me today in, in ESI Bites for this discussion. And to the listeners, if you have questions about this show or any other programs at ESI Bites, just feel free to send me an email at kas at reviewless.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Journal, for their continued support of ESI Bytes. And to the listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd encourage you to go to www.esibytes.com with a Y for a complete list of our shows. And as we always say, come to ESI Bytes to learn more about e-discovery before ESI bites you back. This is Carl Shinneman, president and founder of ReviewLess, wishing you a nice day. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.